Hello and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled, Why Are Historical Biopics Seldom Historical? The date is December 2023 and my name is A.D. Tippett. As a historian living in the age of CGI, I have succumbed to the mistaken belief that the advent of digital technology will render awesome recreations of significant historical figures and events. When Cecil B. DeMille, in his 1956 Ten Commandments, had Moses part the Red Sea, which I first saw as a child, I was filled with wonder. Yet today it looks, well, a little cheesy. And the dialogue? Ouch. And yet there is still majesty in that film, primarily due to the gravitas of Charlton Heston and his stentorian voice and the -the over-the-top performance by Yul Brenner as Ramses II. The promise of technological prowess has yet to yield what I crave. Though Stanley Kubrick got the tactics wrong, his 1960 depiction of the battle between the Spartacani and Marcus Crassus's Roman legions still looks better than some of today's CGI. But again, it was Kirk Douglas and Laurence Olivier, not the hordes of Spanish army stand-ins that made the movie work. CGI must serve the story, and all too often, it is the other way around. And CGI surely cannot compensate for poor casting. There are three kinds of biopics made today. The first captures a specific time and tries to flesh out history from that point. This was done to perfection by Lincoln. The passage of the 13th Amendment and the events surrounding that moment were a big enough canvas to see Abraham Lincoln in all his aspects. The immortal Lincoln was captured from the recitation to him of the Gettysburg Address to the moment in the telegraph station. And so was the grubby political huckster bribing congressmen with patronage jobs to get his amendment passed. Lincoln was all those things and more. And I left the theater thinking that it was in fact Lincoln. Well, but most of all was Daniel Day-Lewis's portrayal of Lincoln from his voice to his mannerisms and reactions to events. It was the performance of the decade and it looked more like a documentary than a performance. Another movie of this type was Walk the Line. We have flashbacks, of course, but much of Johnny Cash's performances were left out to better focus on his relationships with his brother and the love of his life, June Carter. Sometimes the director will play on this theme, as was the case with Steve Jobs. And I don't mean the bad one with Ashton Kutcher, but the good one with Michael Fassbender. In that case, three days of Jobs' life are shown, featuring three different product launches. We get nothing of Jobs' hippie days, dating Joan Baez, his successful second marriage, or even the launch of Apple's masterpiece product, the iPhone. Yet the purpose was accomplished. If the goal is to learn about the figure and what made them worthy of a movie, Lincoln, Walk the Line, and Steve Jobs achieve that task. Then, they're the hit jobs for political points, and since the left controls the artistic levers of power in Washington, it is almost always right-wing figures in the crosshairs. Biopics ranging from Dick Cheney to Ronald Reagan to George W. Bush follow this narrative. And one of the more egregious examples of this type, Hollywood, with the connivance of Meryl Streep, portrayed the great Margaret Thatcher, who helped revive England and end the Cold War, was portrayed in her senility and dotage. 
The Iron Lady, we see Thatcher was brainless and demented, or so the story would have us believe. I'd like to see a Woodrow Wilson movie where after his stroke, his wife is running the executive branch, or one where Franklin Roosevelt is lying about his heart condition to keep power. But I am not holding my breath. The third type is the Run Through the Life movie. This is the kind of the standard biopic. These films are the greatest hits of a historical figure. This is the most common example. From a beautiful mind to the theory of everything, in which case we have Charles Forbes Nash and we have Stephen Hawking, we get all the trials and triumphs of the figure. We saw some of this in two Elizabeth I movies with Kate Blanchett playing the Tudor Queen and another was Braveheart where we see William Wallace from the inception of the Scottish revolts to his death. One of the challenges with this rush through life is that it can begin to resemble a dry textbook, a recitation of dates without getting into the substance and the texture of their person and their time. Obviously another problem is simply a running time. A lot of these guys go to almost three hours, sometimes even four, but they still don't feel as as if we got to the heart of the figure. And we don't need to see Lincoln courting Mary Todd, nor his debates with Stephen Douglas. We see enough of his marriage and realize his opinions on slavery during the period in the spring of 1865 to get a sense of his character and life. Now, another biopic is the, the, what I would call the jukebox musical. It's, it's obviously a favorite on Broadway. Forget having to write all new songs. We'll just kind of put on this sort of quasi-play or musical and then just do the music everybody loves. There was Jersey Boys on Broadway, uh, which was the, the Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. So these are kind of like the movie versions of that. And the ease of doing musical stars is evident. Instead of some plot or dialogue, as in Steve Jobs, the director can just fill the music at the space. Walk the Line, Rocket Man, about Elton John, and Bohemian Rhapsody, a biopic about Freddie Mercury, were of this type. Then the decision comes to lip syncing. Now, one of the reasons Joaquin Phoenix's portrayal of Cash including his singing of songs, was better than I had imagined, given the impossibility of replicating Cash's unique bass voice. Yet Phoenix kind of captures sort of the ethos and certainly the way that Cash performed. Now in portraying John, actor Taron Edgerton also elected to sing the songs himself, which was odd given his voice sounded nothing like the entertainers. Yet there was also kind of an an authenticity to it. Lip syncing, whether at Macy's Day Parade, which is almost laughable, or in movies, sometimes comes across as odd, even though most do it. In Les Miserables, a terrible movie from 2012, they were not simulcast, but live singing. Ouch. However, what brought that production down was not that form, but the horrifically lousy singing by Russell Crowe, Amanda Seyfried, and others. One of my frustrations is that, except for Lincoln, every movie I have ever mentioned takes great liberties with historical facts. For example, in Elizabeth, the Golden Age, Sir Walter Raleigh, who's sort of set up as a love interest to the Queen, even though they never really showed them getting together, but Raleigh himself is seen directly combating the Spanish Armada. In fact, he's kind of the the catalyst for that. And yet, the real Sir Walter Raleigh never came close to that fleet. In Braveheart, Wallace actually beds 
the French Princess Isabella, implying that the Scot was the father of eventual English King Edward III and cuckolding the entire Plantagenet dynasty. Isabella and Wallace never met, of course, in real life. Like, like they're going to send the French princess to negotiate with them? It is, I mean, that one was just hysterical. It has been pointed out that 13th century Scots also did not paint their faces blue, and they didn't even have kilts. But of course, if you're going to make a movie about a Scot, he's got to be wearing the kilt, right? Even if kilts didn't come in until the 1700s. My issue is not just historical accuracy, but that history itself is so rich and complex and full of human drama that I would ask what, why one needs to make stuff up. Now, I crave a big-budget production of the Battle of Trafalgar. Here's just kind of the synopsis. Napoleon Bonaparte, the French emperor, wanted to conquer England. The British fleet prevented this. So Napoleon assembles a massive French and Spanish fleet to force passage. The celebrated Admiral Horatio Nelson engages this fleet in action, but puts his flagship in the lead and himself standing on the deck in a conspicuously gaudy uniform, where he is later shot. His victory at Trafalgar ended plans for a French invasion and ensured British mastery of the seas for the next century. But Nelson dies three hours after his wounding, and the fleet and all of Britain mourn. Nelson was brilliant, egotistical, a philanderer, and personally reckless. No fiction is this cool. Yet for all of my historical critiques of movies, such as Elizabeth or Braveheart, I thoroughly enjoyed them not because I was watching histories with Lincoln, but at the center of the film are great leads much like the Ten Commandments in Spartacus. Kate Blanchett and Mel Gibson can hold down the productions regardless of the liberties taken. What I kind of do is, when I'm watching something like that, I sort of just suspend belief and say to myself, well, E.D., you're not really watching uh, a historical movie. It's not really kind of a, a documentary type thing. So just watch it for entertainment and enjoy yourself. And I can't. If the, if the production is good and if the leads are fabulous. Which brings me to Napoleon. Ugh. Ridley Scott's most recent movie. As with the films mentioned above, Scott takes certain liberties. We'll just put it that way. Napoleon did not win his epic battle at Austerlitz by bombarding a frozen lake. But in fact, even more complex tactics, which were brilliantly executed, one of the things they don't really emphasize is, is that he was outnumbered by probably 20,000 troops. He did not win the Battle of the Pyramids by merely firing at the pyramids, which happened to be nine miles away and disconcerting the Mamluks. Yet, as noted, I can live with some of this because the movie featured real-life battles. He got Napoleon at Toulon and his famous battle at Waterloo. As noted, this rush through events, even a movie as long as three hours, which was Napoleon, can lead to specific issues evident in this film. But even if they had gone instead to, let's say, a 10-hour miniseries for one of the streaming services, probably a better kind of answer to how you would really do a, a biopic in which the person does a lot of stuff, problems with Napoleon would still have persisted. I always tried to figure out what tone Ridley Scott was trying to achieve during my viewing. At one point, it is deadly serious, as was Braveheart. 
Braveheart moments of comedy is is when the two Scots are throwing rocks at each other head at each other's heads, but it was not for one moment supposed to be farcical. What William Wallace and his and his uh, Scottish followers were doing was intensely serious. And just to emphasize the point, they had the the legend of the first night in which and it's a horrific practice in which some local lord, in this case a lot of them being English would have the first time with some maiden. Obviously, that would uh, P.O. a people. And, and so Braveheart took on that very serious tone. Yet at other moments, such as when Napoleon sputters to the British ambassador, saying that the British are arrogant because they have boats. They have boats. He literally spit out the line. And at that moment, I was wondering if the whole thing was a farce, similar to Hulu's self-titled TV show about Catherine the Great. Then there's the relationship with Josephine. Historically, Josephine's ardor for Napoleon was not matched by his own for her. She had affairs, which are covered in the movie. But we have Napoleon learning of them in Egypt, which is used as an excuse for why he left the Middle East and abandoned his army. The reality was he needed to get home for political, not personal reasons. Now, all marriages have their complexities, but again, the tone at times, they are companions against the world, and at other times, demeaning to one each other, and even others having sex under their dining room table with a score of servants looking on. And this leads us to the biggest issue with the movie. Joaquin is a fine actor. I had already talked about the biopic, 2005's Walk the Line, where I felt his portrayal of Johnny Cash was incredible, and there should have been two Best Actor winners for that one. Yet, that performance I've started to notice is of a phoenix type. And he does a lot of these sort of historical things. Outsider, loner, disaffected by society, and suffering from mental disabilities and rebelling against the status quo. There was Commodus and Gladiator, another historical, well, semi-historical epic. Freddie Quell and the Master, Theodore and her, Joe and you were never really here, and most of all, Arthur Fleck, the nihilistic madman and the Joker. They all have these exact same qualities. It occurred to me watching Napoleon, whereas Daniel Day-Lewis is like a sphinx, morphing from one role to another. Maybe it's Phantom Thread, or maybe it's Billy the Butcher in Gangs of New York. Which, which a character couldn't be really far away from Lincoln as one could possibly get. And even as Newland Archer um, in The Age of Innocence, Daniel Day-Lewis can morph himself into whatever role uh, he takes on. I don't think Phoenix can really do that. Now, I can see certain traits of why Scott would want to cast Phoenix as Napoleon. Instead of being born in France, Napoleon was born in Corsica, an island in the Mediterranean probably with more significant ties to Italy than France. Napoleon was brilliant but vainglorious and did have a troubled life with Josephine. And yet, again, remember the phoenix types and kind of mentally disabled outsider? Napoleon's family that he grew up in Corsica was a prominent one. He maintained close ties with his mother and siblings throughout his life, providing marriages for his sisters and eventually kingships for his many brothers. At a young age, he joined the French army and began to embrace all things French. When he ascended to power, he tied his monarchy to the Roman Empire, the ultimate institution, declaring himself first consul, then emperor, and even employing Roman army-style eagles with his armies. In so many Phoenix characters, 
including Commodus and Arthur Fleck, drive their personas from insecurities and a lack of confidence. Napoleon's most significant victories, from Toulon to his brilliant Italian campaigns to Austerlitz, were all daring in their execution, showing absolute faith in his abilities. Yet Napoleon's greatest mistakes, from the invasions of Spain and Russia to the Battle of Waterloo, were really born out of overweening self-confidence. The, the, the thought that he probably couldn't lose a battle, not from raging insecurities. And, of course, he was overconfident. Of the 60 major battles he fought, he won 45, which fueled his already robust sense of self. I illustrate this to show that Phoenix was simply the wrong actor to play Napoleon, even from a physical standpoint. For example, he won over 10 critical battles in Italy before he turned 28. Phoenix is 49 years old and looks every bit of his age, unlike, say, the 61-year-old Tom Cruise. At 47, Napoleon was younger than Phoenix is now in his last battle at Waterloo. And Napoleon biographer Andrew Roberts noted in 2015 how Napoleon could inspire his troops. On one of his earlier campaigns, the general needed his men to take a well-fortified bridge. Then Napoleon formed up a column of 3,500 men in the back streets of Lodi and gave them an inspirational harangue. One must speak to the soul, he noted, of his battlefield speeches. His men took the bridge and in later battles accomplished near-impossible tasks. This frenzied spirit, known as the French Fury, often gave Napoleon an edge in battle once his harangue had played on regimental pride and whipped up to patriotic fervor. As portrayed by Phoenix, the movie Napoleon could barely inspire anyone to go to the grocery store or clean up the kitchen, much less put their life on the line. After several defeats, Napoleon was exiled to the island of Elba in the Mediterranean in 1814, and when he broke his exile and returned to France in 1815, his men flocked to him, though he had caused the deaths of millions of their countrymen. Napoleon exuded that special something that few leaders possess. Men were compelled not just to want to follow him, but continually put their lives at risk for him. It was a key ingredient to his initial success and is completely missing from Phoenix's performance. For 20 years, Napoleon dominated European affairs through his military exploits, but that was not all to his story. His army spread the French revolutionary ideas throughout the continent. He reorganized much of the European map with tireless energy, ending the thousand-year Holy Roman Empire and giving Italy the first sense of national identity. The 1804 Napoleonic Code, which influenced civil law codes worldwide, replaced the fragmented laws of pre-revolutionary France, recognizing the principles of civil liberty, equality before the law, and the state's secular character, all of which are still in use today. None of this brilliance isn't evident in the movie. Here's Roberts and Napoleon's Italian campaign, where, where Napoleon's legend took root. Since the campaign had begun a year earlier, Napoleon had crossed the Apennines and the Alps, defeated a Sardinian army, and no fewer than six Austrian armies. He killed, wounded, or captured 120,000 Austrian soldiers, and again, achieved all of this at the age of 27. 
and of the lackluster Napoleon in the movie, here's a description of a real single month in Italy for Napoleon. One month. He abolished Austrian governing institutions, reformed Pavia University, held provisional municipal elections, founded a National Guard, conferring with the leading Milanese advocate of Italian unification, all of which was done while provisioning his army, maintaining discipline, planning his subsequent campaigns, and keeping tabs on the government of France back in Paris. So why this casting blunder? It could be that the 84-year-old Scott merely made a mistake. 23 years ago, he worked with Phoenix on Gladiator, producing a Best Picture Oscar. But I think it was that Phoenix was also coming off a Best Actor Oscar winner with The Joker, which was also, and this is very important, a massive blockbuster. So Phoenix, who has been in movies for nearly 30 years, became something after The Joker that he had never been before, bankable. If it is hard to make even regular movies, producing a historical epic without a big name is nearly impossible. It is hard not to think, though, of Oscar Isaac, though he is probably too old to play him, but I just I just think of Oscar Isaac with the energy he showed as Dameron Pro in the Star Wars sequel, one of the few bright spots of, that, of those sequels, and His Majesty as Duke Leto Atreides in Dune. At least we would have a type. There's also Rami Malek. Rami Malek, I think, could show the energy, the brilliance. Who would I, I think he would have been much better than Phoenix, plus he would look younger. But much to my disappointment, it is not like studios are eager to shell out money for historical movies, so there will be no additional epics about Napoleon, probably not in my lifetime. Why are so many of these historical epics wrong? Would not a compelling, exciting complex Napoleon had made for a better movie and better box office? I think there is a fear in Hollywood of two things, making an audience like odious figures, and given the fact that Napoleon caused the death of millions, he's certainly not somebody you'd want to personally emulate. Or, as often is the case with the left, in the case of like a movie like The Iron Lady, politically unacceptable ones. That's really number one. They don't want to turn odious figures into something that maybe is likable. And the second piece is a distrust of their of the audience's ability to engage with the content. Simply put, Hollywood doesn't really trust us. Austerlitz, arguably Napoleon's most brilliant victory, was also complex. Yet instead of walking us through that, which could be done similarly to another Scott actor, Russell Crowe did it in A Beautiful Mind, in which he sort of described, and you could imagine how his mind worked, what you could do is just have Napoleon kind of lay out his plans and then CGI it up so we could see just how brilliant Austerlitz really was. And I, I actually think that would have been much better than to lob cannonballs on a frozen lake and let the CGI take over. And speaking of Russell Crowe, he was in one of the best historical movies of all time. Unfortunately, it wasn't really a historical movie because the characters were all fictional. It is called Master and Commander, and it featured fictional characters, yet in settings true to history. From the five-foot-high below decks to the fact that a British ship in the Napoleonic Wars would be staffed by, well, entirely white men, something unacceptable to the Bridgerton crowd or the crowd today which wants to cast uh, blacks and Asians and other people uh, of minority status into these roles to kind of say like, like, oh, here we go. We can cast anybody you like. And that's fine if you're, let's say, I don't know, playing around with a fictional play. 
when you're doing it in history, it immediately signals to the audience, this is not really history anymore. This is the director making a political point. Takes you right out of the show. In Master and Commander, at one point, a teenage officer gets his arm cut off. And the captain shows this boy a picture of Nelson, who also lost an arm and an eye prior to Trafalgar. Again, you cannot make this stuff up. But the film, poorly marketed in my opinion, grossed $212 million globally, barely recouping its $150 million budget. So, no sequels. Hollywood does not like risks, and they don't trust their audiences. Yet I would say the movie was profitable, and what was interesting what Hollywood missed is the followings of this movie are huge. If you actually made a sequel today, I think you, would, you, would, you could make bank on it. Yet, Lemming like Hollywood does not want to learn that lesson. After the Avengers, with their crossover, what was it, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, started to rake in the billions, we had universes galore. Remember Lemmings? DC Comics tried theirs with the Justice League. Universal conceived of a dark universe with mummies and vampires, again with the ubiquitous Russell Crowe again as Henry Jekyll and, and Edward Hyde. And my favorite, the Monsterverse, with a giant lizard, Godzilla, teaming up with a giant monkey, King Kong. Okay, I am now going to revert to Captain Pedantic. I know an ape is not a monkey, folks. Now, what is the commonality? Are they all these universes were box office failures. And do not get me started on the King Arthur, Robin Hood, X-Men, Ghostbusters, and Alien Predator universes. And really, really do not get me started on the multiverse. Game of Thrones is one of the recent decades more interesting fictional shows, but it is based on history. I get it. There were dragons and zombies, but the real fun, I think what people really liked, was the characters. Their hopes, their plans, their treacheries, as noble houses, based on feudal times, competing for power. George R. R. Martin made no secret of his borrowings from British and French history when he wrote the series. And just as you cannot make up Trafalgar, you cannot make up the Wars of the Roses, which is so much of what that is. Forget the next Netflix attempted an Amy Schumer special or the rancher Emily in Paris. Look up the Lancasters and the Yorks and make that. In the case of Napoleon, we have a real-life, brilliant, flawed man who competed for power at the highest level and for the most significant stakes, and we have to endure him moping around and complaining about British boats. In 1810, at the height of his power, Napoleon reorganized all of Europe. The movie Napoleon could not have organized a riot. Thank you for listening to this latest of the Conservative Historian Podcast. Check out all of our podcasts. We're up and down the dial. This is A.D. Tippett. Thank you.